Life in a Small French Village, Episode 10, Meatballs. Like many other mayors, ours, a local farmer with much land, decided it was time that the village modernise. What he meant by this was selling his own farming land for a new housing estate. Of course, that meant the land would have to be rezoned, but such a petty complication didn't bother him any. He was, after all, the mayor. In order for agricultural land to be rezoned as building land, a mayor must first hold a public meeting during which locals and members of the municipal council discuss the feasibility of such a project. Regulations concerning such conversion must be consulted and building permits must be obtained, something that is normally difficult since, as a general rule, it is forbidden to build on agricultural land. However, if, on paper at least, the plan of occupation is shifted slightly so that the quota between agricultural land, agricultural buildings, housing and shops can be seen to conform to official regulations, nothing is too difficult, especially if the mayor claims it is for the public good. Our mayor announced that the village needed more housing for incoming residents. In 1982, the population of the village was 336. Today, 36 years later, it has gone up by 40. No matter it all looked good on paper. The municipal council certainly gave the okay. All the members, like the mayor, were locals. No newcomers to the village were ever elected, despite their efforts. No, the municipal council was a closed circle. All members had been buddies since time began. Their ancestors had been intermarrying since the Stone Age. All knew they might need a favour from the mayor. Most had land that they might, one day, also like to have rezoned. So why cause trouble? Especially since agricultural land sells for far less than building land. As ever in politics, one hand washes the other. That this was an abuse of power, a conflict of interest, bothered no one. Wasn't everyone doing the same all over the country? And who would be willing to pay lawyers and court costs for a case that could last years? There was, and still is, a great difference between newcomers to a village and locals whose families have been in residence for centuries. The newcomers who abandon city life seek rural charm, a way of life that is less stressful, perhaps even less modern, contact with neighbours, and, of course, a calm that is little available in the midst of a noisy, crowded city. But those who have been rural for generations aren't seeking those same things. They want to be seen as modern, up and coming. Incomers from the city bought old houses and generally let them retain a certain amount of their ancient charm. Rural folk wanted to look successful and modern. They wanted their old houses to look like the newest creations found in housing estates. So, 
With heavy layers of cement, they covered traditional stone or wattle and daub. They replaced wooden windows and shutters with the latest models in PVC or aluminium. They smothered quarry tiles under industrial tile. As for gardens, if their parents had usually had a vegetable patch, the newer generation disliked trees and ripped them out, replaced them with lawns and a certain amount of statuary. Cement venuses, barbecues disguised as old water wells, cement nymphs poised over cement pseudo-bird baths. And surrounding these industrialized dwellings, there had to be a barrier of some modern sort, not the mixed hedges of old, but new chain-link fences, barriers in PVC or cement. And one more element had to be added, a barking dog. And so it was with my two neighbours just across the road. Two brothers, they had grown up as part of a large family in the still rustic house I now lived in. And now they were going to show the world how far from their modest past they had come. One constructed a new villa in cement. The other bought a former stone farmhouse right next door to him, covered it in cement and renovated it until it now resembled his brother's new villa. They didn't resist other symbols of social ascension either. Villagers were awed by the information that both brothers had had television sets incorporated into the footboards of all their children's beds. And, of course, outside, their houses and flowerless, shrubless lawns were surrounded by a high-chain-link fence to guard the property while the brothers and their wives went off to work in a distant town, each bought a dog to ward off the jealous, the covetous, and the evil. But our village was sorely lacking in covetous evildoers, and the dogs, bored out of their tiny canine minds, barked. They barked at passers-by, they barked at cars. They barked at flies, birds, and fleas. They barked at falling leaves and drifting paper. They barked when the wind changed direction. They barked when it snowed. Mostly, they barked at each other on either side of the chain-link fence separating them. To say they were just across the road from my house doesn't quite give an accurate description. The road was narrow, one car wide and the barking was clearly audible throughout my house and in the studio where I worked. It was a constant and penetrating noise. Music couldn't cover it. Earplugs were useless. Each separate bark was a nuclear crack. I wasn't the only one bothered by the noise. Other people on the street protested, but I was the closest. When we, the other inhabitants, complained... The two brothers simply said that the dogs were doing their job of protecting their property. They, of course, never had to listen to the dogs, since as soon as they returned each evening, they let the animals into the house. Could they please leave the dogs inside the house during the day, we asked? No, they said. Could they put the dogs in the back part of their rather extensive properties, where the barking would be less irritating to the rest of us? No, they said. They didn't want to. The only solution was to appeal to the mayor. He was responsible for solving such problems. 
But as I said, our mayor had rezoned his land for construction with the support of the municipal council. Both brothers were on the council. One was assistant mayor. The mayor wasn't going to bother them. Ditto for a response from the police. A few were friends of the mayor. There was a cousin or two, an uncle, a best friend of the brothers. So what could be done? There was an agency created to help those with such problems, and there was a procedure that had to be followed. What we had to do was get signatures from all the neighbours, from friends, from a justice of the peace who came as witness to the noise. Recommended letters had to be sent to the brothers, letters they never accepted. But finally, all the necessary paperwork was complete, and we sent the thick file off to the tribunal. Time passed. The dogs barked. It became impossible to remain home during the day, but I wasn't the only one to suffer. In quite another part of France, one man shot his neighbor's barking dog. In another, a man shot not only his neighbor's two barking dogs, but his neighbor as well. Certainly, those two events did solve the problem, and the idea of never hearing the two brothers' dogs bark again was a heady one. But such a drastic solution wasn't one I wanted to take. I didn't fancy a life sentence, and I do like dogs. I was a dog owner. Another less violent, or perhaps more patient man, did find a solution to the same problem in his village. He set out loudspeakers, pointed them in the direction of his neighbor's house, and replayed throughout the night a tape of the neighbor's barking dog. That was a solution that seemed reasonable. However, he was charged with disturbance of the peace. So I waited for the tribunal to solve the problem. And the next thing we heard is that the case hadn't been treated in the allotted time, therefore the entire procedure, with justice of the peace, signatures, and all the other paperwork that the French are so terribly fond of, had to be started again. The situation was quite hopeless. Or was it? Okay, I wasn't going to shoot anyone. But what about tranquilizing the beasts? Would that work? And how would I go about it? Well, that was easy enough. I'd incorporate tranquilizers into chopped meat. I felt guilty but exhilarated. This was a solution, one that would end up by costing me quite a sum in tranquilizers if I had to do it every day over the years, but it would bring me some peace. So having obtained the necessary equipment, one dark night, I prepared the meatballs with care. Small, tasty, round things. Too small to be detected by the owners, but just right for a doggy nose, and just enough to put them into a good, long sleep. It was a risky venture I was embarking upon. I knew that. What if someone saw me? What if the owners noticed the meatballs on the lawn when they woke up in the morning and saw them before the dogs had eaten them? And what if someone heard me? I knew, all the villagers knew, that every local slept with a shotgun beside the bed, aside from Mary Paul's husband, who slept with a huge knife under his pillow, and Redhead, who was said to sleep with a bayonet under his. 
if any trigger-happy local heard me creeping around in the night, my number would be up. And this wasn't a cause I wanted to die for. So I waited. I waited until late that night, until there was no movement on our road, until the last village light had been extinguished, until all were surely and safely tucked into their beds. It was a still, windless, moonless, starless night. Carefully I let myself out of my door, waited, listened. Then, in my soundless, soft slippers, I began crossing the road, meatballs in hand. I certainly didn't want to wake my victims, who, although they slept inside, would surely start barking, give the game away, let every village resident know I was up to no good. One step after another, I crossed the narrow stretch of road, treading softly. But on a soundless night, footsteps, no matter how soft, sound loud, especially in my own guilty ears. And with every footstep, I seemed to land on a bit of gravel. And every bit of gravel crunched and ground. Seemed to create a sound as thunderous, as dangerous to my well-being as an alarm bell. It seemed to take hours before I finally managed to cross that tiny strip of road. There I was. No dog barked. No one was about. I threw my first meatball over the chain-link fence and onto the lawn on the left. It hit the grass with a sound that, to my ears, on that dark still night was a deafening thud. I waited, terrified, waited for the sound of a gun being cocked. Nothing happened. I threw the second meatball onto the lawn on the right side of the chain-link fence, heard yet another crack of thunder as it hit the grass. Still no barks. I threw a third, a fourth, threw all, until there were none left. Then I turned, and slowly, as quietly as possible, the gravel crackling under my feet, made my way in the direction of home and safety. It wasn't until I was halfway across the road that it started, a howling, a ferocious barking, the sound of canine hordes let loose, a cacophony loud enough to waken the dead, get them whirling wildly in their graves in the distant churchyard. But it wasn't the two brothers' dogs that were barking. No, the noise came from further down near the crossroads. Terrified, I raced over to my door, slipped inside the house. The next morning was calm and sunny. At seven, I waited for the barking to start, as it usually did. Nothing. Had the dogs eaten their meatballs? Evidently. At eight, there was nothing. At nine, nothing. Ten o'clock, still silent. Then, at ten-thirty, there was a hammering on my door. The dogs had died, I was certain of it. I had given too strong a dose. The police were there to arrest me. But no, 
It was my neighbor, Mary Paul, and she was highly excited. Didn't you hear the barking in the middle of the night, she asked. No, I lied, and hoped I looked perfectly innocent. Well, she said, she had a tasty morsel of news to impart. Guess what? In the middle of the night, someone poisoned Madame Lamy's dogs. They're both dead. Too bad they didn't get those dogs right across the street. And not five minutes later, those dogs across the road began their day of barking, barking, barking. The effect of the tranquilizers had worn off. I didn't repeat my meatball crime. I knew this was a hopeless situation. But what was more distressing? The idea that there was no solution to the barking other than moving house, or the knowledge that while I was tiptoeing my way through the night, step by cautious step, holding my breath, a mere one hundred meters away, someone else was also tiptoeing their way through the night, bent on evil. <laughs>